My message today is entitled, Choose Jesus. Coming into the 4th of July weekend in America, there are celebrations in every town, every hamlet, every community, with food and fireworks and fun. Parties of families and friends enjoying the freedoms that we've been given through the fulfillment of the Declaration of Independence. You understand that we don't just celebrate the Declaration of Independence. That a document was to declare independence. It was in the middle of the war. And, and, and so it took a while to, to have an independence. And, and so the fulfillment of it had its roots in what we now celebrate. And while celebrations of a victory gave us the freedoms um, that we are now able to have, um, it should not be at the expense of forgiving, uh, forgetting just how hard that victory was of the sacrifices that were made in the first place. The truth of the matter is that America had to endure great persecution in the early days of fighting. In the early days of fighting back the oppressive hand of Great Britain, the taxes were some of them are called the intolerable acts. And I know there's, you guys know a lot about history, but it's unbelievable what early Americans endured. That the, the laws that said that, okay, a great Brit's going to come over and fight us, and we have to, by law, let them stay in our house. That was the quartering act. That was intolerable. And so finally the Americans said, we had enough, and we're willing to fight and even die so that we could have the freedoms that we now enjoy today. We had to willing to fight against the over-controlling, tyrannic rule of Great Britain. And this all culminated, as you know, in the Revolutionary War, where it is believed that each side had close to 25,000 casualties, including battlefield deaths, but also deaths from disease when they couldn't... Uh, be, fix up their bandages as well and their wounds. There are also deaths from being malnourished, as well as many men dying as prisoners of war and those who were missing. So over 50,000 men and women on both sides died as a result of this war that we just now enjoy. But that's why I'm saying we can't just enjoy it without understanding the sacrifices that were made to fight for these freedoms. Let us never forget the fight that was given for this cause. Yet let us also remember the determination that's needed for a far greater cause. Let us remember the tyrannical, over-controlling nature of our sinful flesh that seeks to bring us into submission and wrestle away any thought of freedom that we have in Christ, resulting in the hope of eternal life. There's a constant battle going on for all of us, and it's, it, and, and it's amping up in today's world, trying to wrestle you away from the freedoms that were purchased for us at the cross. Let us understand exactly what Jesus did to secure this victory for all who call upon his name, for all who turn to him, acknowledging their absolute need for a Savior and trusting him alone for their salvation and victory. For it is not by the, the power and the plans of men that we've gained this victory at the cross. 
In fact, mankind over the years has only gotten in the way and muddied up the plan of God over centuries to defeat the evil that's in this world. Throughout history, man has tirelessly pushed the narrative of choosing which side to be on for each battle of victory. I mean, if you think about the battle, I'm not going to go there, but understand the Civil War. Did you know that both sides of the Civil War were praying to the God for victory? Right? It's the same in any baseball or football game. Both sides are praying for victory with opposing sides and opposing views. And so this narrative that has been pushed over time is you need to choose a side. Our side is better. You see it overwhelmingly today in this extreme polarization of we need to choose a side. If you look at our country today, the question still remains, which side are you on? Which side do you support? Which side has your best interests? On which side will you choose to stand on each and every issue? It's not just what, what you think, on, but so many issues have dominated our news and our culture, and it's, we're being pushed to pick a side, and people are arguing which one is the better side. Yet I want to tell you that this is not a new phenomenon. For even people in the time of Christ continually tried to paint Jesus into a corner, attempting to make him choose a side so they could accuse him one way or the other. Mark 12, verse 13, says, Then they sent to him, speaking of Jesus, they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Do you understand that this pushing people as a side is, is, a, is a trap? To choose a side is a trap, and so they wanted to push Jesus to one side or the other because they had a backup for either way. Choose a side. We're going to catch you in your words. Next verse. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful now then to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Notice the setup, the buttering up, and the leading question. Their words were dripping with deception. When they say, we know that you are true, and we know that you teach the way of God in truth. In reality, they don't believe anything they're saying. For their main purpose is to push Jesus to one side so they can trap him in his response. They figure, yes, now we have him. If he goes here, we're going to use this argument. Here, use this argument. We got him. For if he claims that people should not pay taxes to the Roman government, then he would be arrested by the Romans. But if he claims that everyone um, should pay taxes to, to, to Rome... Then his followers were questioned, why should they support a pagan government? Why should we support a government that doesn't believe that what we're saying? So they figure they have Jesus painted into a corner. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see these deceptive and trapping practices are still being practiced today. Each side attempts to vilify the opposing side because of their logic trying to pit laws versus compassion, trying to pit precedent versus morality. Yet Jesus gives us an example in how he responds. 
A lot of people ask me, how do I respond to what's going on in the world today? That's what this sermon is about today. Jesus refused to be painted into a corner. For it's not about the sides presented in any man-given argument. The answer is simply to follow Jesus. What's that mean? I want you to hear what the Bible tells us how to follow Jesus when we're forced to try to pick a side. Mark 12, verses 15. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. In essence, Jesus declares to give to the government or give to the world whatever belongs to the world, but give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Your heart. That's what God is asking for, to give him your heart in each issue. In other words, it's your heart that belongs to God. So give God your heart. Even in all the controversies of today, the reason why so many people are duped and divided is because those who push the narrative to give only a right and a left side. Are you standing on the right or are you standing on the, on the left? Jesus said, just choose me. Just follow me. This results in a mixture if you pick one side or the other. It results in a mixture of morality and pride, which results in blindness. Or a mixture of compassion and selfishness, which leads to ignorance. Both sides often, not always, but a lot of times both sides have some good aspects which move people to their respective sides. But neither side, neither one, has the absolute godly wisdom of Jesus Christ 100% of the time. Both sides are tainted, and both sides often prey on the fear of man. Both sides are compromised because the choice of wholeheartedly following Jesus alone is omitted in favor of presenting either a right or a left. Mark 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said these words, Again, understand it's for a time such as this. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult. Difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is one, I believe, one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Because people interpret it based on their assessment of their own intentions. Instead of, oh, God sees us, and God sees our intentions. Most people, even most people who believe they are Christians, believe that, of course, we're on the narrow way. Even though the Bible is clear that very, very few find this way that leads to life. Because it is narrow. Therefore, it behooves us to know how to interpret God's directions for the narrow way. So we don't get stuck choosing a side that seems mostly right, but leads to destruction. Because our, our pride refuses to admit that we're wrong. 
The problem happens when, when people interpret the law of God and the Word of God according to their own flesh's interpretation. In other words, what you think God. You ever hear people say, well, God couldn't do it. I don't believe God would do that. Why not? Because God's a loving God. He would never do that. So you're telling me what God would do instead of the Bible tells me what God does? It's our own flesh wants to interpret things the way that our own flesh wants to hear it. Our personal will that we have is contrary to God. When the Pharisees interpreted the law according to their own selfish desires, they picked obvious parts of the law where they know that they could show that they were better than others. I know I can pray better, so I'm going, to, I'm going to discount your prayer and say how much better I can pray. I know I can give more to the poor, so I'm going to say that you're not giving enough to the poor, and I can shine a light on how much I'm giving to the poor. They picked things that were obvious in public that they could show that they are better than someone else. Such as their choice to not commit adultery. And their choice to not break laws of murder and theft and such. They also went out of their way to draw attention to their holiness when they fasted and prayed in public in front of others to show their superiority in light of others' inferiority. In these aspects, they could also show, not only am I great, but I'm better than you, so you all failed. That was the heart behind the Pharisees. The selfish greed of their hearts wanted to show everyone else why these Pharisees and the teachers of the law were better than everyone else. You see, the error of human will, regardless of which side is chosen, is that people generally interpret the law based on the reading of the law and their desires, which are at some level impure. One of the most underquoted Bible verses prove this to be true for everyone. Do you know this is in your Bible? Because it's not spoken of a lot. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We hear the exact opposite. That everyone is good. It's good all over the place. And yet, and yet the Bible says the heart is wicked. Why? Because we have a sinful nature. That we all have. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we're here today. No one wants to proclaim that their heart is wicked and deceitful, but that's exactly what God declares. We all have this sinful nature, which influences our thoughts, even if you don't realize it. It influences our feelings and our judgments of others and our motivations on why we do the things that we do. Therefore, whenever we attempt to interpret the law, our flesh will do whatever it can to influence our interpretation. Some things we're aware of and some things we're not. Our interpretations are constantly susceptible to politics, to social movements, to self-righteousness, and popular opinions of others, including charismatic leaders. That's, our flesh is susceptible to that. These are all factors that lead us away from the very narrow path that leads to life. And these all play a major role in those who choose a side rather than choosing Jesus. It's not about choosing a right or a left or choosing a side. It's about choosing Jesus. 
There are many others in Christ's time on earth who interpreted prophecy based on what they wanted to happen. Even now, people talk about the end-time events based on what they want to happen. It happened back in Jesus' time also. Prophecy was given to know the direction that, that the world was going. And there were people, even those who followed Jesus, that interpreted prophecy on what they think should happen. For instance, many followers expected the Messiah to come, which prophecy declared. Okay, our Messiah is going to come. He's going to save us. That's a true thing. But they also added something to it that their flesh wanted to hear. In fact, many followers, including a man named Judas, expected the Messiah to come in power and to overthrow the Roman occupation. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to get rid of this government, this pagan government, and he's going to overthrow by force the government and restore the kingdom of Israel. It is human nature today as well to expect that God wants people to overthrow an unrighteous government. Yet Jesus did not come to overthrow the government by force. So when this did not happen, when Jesus did not overthrow the Roman occupation, when Jesus did not call on the forces of men to help him overcome the government, Judas and others became angry and felt betrayed. God's will was contrary to Judas's will or Judas's desires. And rather than coming into submission to God's will, Judas decided to enact his own will and betray Jesus. But it wasn't only Judas who wanted to enact his own will over God's will. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, wanted to use human force to rebel against God's will. You know the story. When Jesus willingly allowed himself to be taken prisoner, when they came to him in the garden, Peter took off the sword off his side and he swung and he struck the ear of the servant's high priest, cutting off his ear. Matthew 26, 52. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus said, it has to happen this way. What was this way? This was the way of Jesus. It was not on the right and it was not on the left. It was the way of Jesus to follow God's will, which frankly does not make sense to our human minds. You're not going to know which side to get on by studying more articles over here or reading more discussions over here or listening to this news station over here. If you want to know how to choose, you need to be in the Bible. And listen to the Holy Spirit directing you back to that narrow way. It's not about the right or left. It's about choosing Jesus. It has to be done this way. When Jesus interpreted the law, he did so according to God's will. Throughout his teachings, he showed us how to interpret God's law according to the heart of God. That's God's will. What is God's heart? You see, coming against the Pharisees and all those who wanted to interpret God's will according to their own will, Jesus contradicted them by not stressing the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law or the spirit behind the law. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. 
says, our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, because that's legalism, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jesus came to not only fulfill the law, and he did it perfectly, but he came not only to fulfill the law in his death on the cross, but also to teach us the spirit behind the law. We must understand why the law was given. Through Adam's sin, man wanted to be like God. So God basically said, if you want to be like me, I'll let you. Try. You want to be like me? All you got to do is be perfect. For I'm perfect. So go ahead. If you want to try I mean, in fact, I'll give you everything. If you just follow all of these laws, you'll be perfect. We have to follow every law, every day, every single step of it. So God gave his law to his people. But it was more than just a set of rules that people should try to do the best they can at. The Pharisees who didn't seek God's will thought the main point was to point out who could follow the law the best. Again, this is how the human heart influences the interpretation of God's word. It's not about who, I'm, I'm doing better from better than you. That's, that's what their interpretation was. It wasn't about following 80% of it or 90% of it. I've been a school teacher for 30 years. 80% is mastery. Hey, I've mastered the law. I'm following 80% of it. It's not what it's about. God said, if you want to be like me, you have to follow all of it all the time, and be perfect. That's the only way that you can be like me, God said, because I'm perfect. Because it was impossible for man or woman or child to be perfect, we need to understand that the law was given to show us that we can't do it, to show us that we need Jesus. In fact, the New Testament says that the law was given as a tutor to bring us to Christ, to show us that we need Jesus. We cannot follow the law. The law was given to show us that we all are guilty before God and all of us are in need of a Savior. When Jesus interpreted the law to people to show them how to interpret the law, in one of his longest teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, called the Sermon on the Mount, he taught what the spirit of the law was versus what others thought that it declared. Remember, the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit brings life. So God says, I want you to understand what the Spirit of the law is. What's the Spirit of my commands? Matthew 5.21 Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you, here's the Spirit of it, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be danger of the judgment. And whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Thus Jesus taught that murder takes place at the heart level, even far before it ever leads to an observable action. He taught that we are convicted by our thoughts and our words, not simply our actions. 
But he didn't stop there. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In teaching the spirit behind the law, Jesus showed that all of us are guilty. All of us sin. All of us need Jesus. We are all guilty before God. None of us should think that our interpretation of the law is accurate when it's, when it's being influenced by our will. That's why when we draw political lines on sides of which to stand, we always compromise the Word of God in some points. When they're political lines. Jesus said things that didn't go along with the human will because our will is influenced by our flesh and our sinful desires. The real danger in all of this is that far too often, here's the truth, far too often we commit sins at the heart level. And we dwell and we meditate and we have wrongful motivations and we consider a sin. And then we simply think that because we didn't do the outright obvious sin action, that we didn't sin. We tell ourselves, oh, I'm just being tempted as I dwell on this thought and I think and I judge this person in my heart. But as long as I don't say something or do something, I, I didn't sin. I'm just being tempted. But Jesus smacked right against that. And he said, no. Adultery occurs in the heart. Murder occurs in the heart. You have sinned in your heart. It's the same as sinning on the outside. Sin is sin, no matter if it happens in your mind or by your hands. It has the same consequence. And I know many times our flesh or our logic or our sinful thoughts will tell us that sin and thought is not as bad as a sin and action. If I was only thinking about it, at least I did commit the act. Two things in heaven you're not going to find. You're not going to find a watch or a clock because time doesn't matter. You're also not going to find a ruler or a measuring device because every sin is just one sin keeps you out of heaven the same way that 10,000 does. God doesn't measure sin. All sin needs to come under the blood of Jesus to be forgiven. We tell ourselves that if we only think it, we're just being tempted and we're not sinning unless we do it. And if you've heard that in your own mind, because I've heard that thought, that lying thought from the enemy, or if you thought that with your head, or if you've started to justify that because you've been able to hold your actions back, then you must be strong, this goes against the teachings of Jesus. We all sin in words, in actions, but also in thoughts, in motivations, all the time. Why? Because we have a sinful nature. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we sing about His amazing grace, because we continue to sin and we can't help it, but He saves us and loves us anyways if we turn to Him. Now, if you think I'm wrong about this, if you think, no, 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 that is temptation if you think about it and you don't do it. If you think it's only a temptation when you're thinking about sin, as long as you don't do it. And I ask you to consider this example. Now we know that Jesus is perfect. How would it feel if before Jesus forgave people, if in his heart and in his mind he said, 
I hate this person. He is disgusting. She doesn't deserve to live. He is rude and selfish. She does not honor me. I can't stand them. And then what would happen if Jesus said, oh wait, I'm supposed to forgive them because of my grace for mankind. So now I'm going to choose to forgive them. Now of course this would never happen because if it did, it would taint everything that Jesus did. But remember, Jesus has never sinned and never will sin because He is perfect in actions, in words, in thoughts, in motivations. So we best not ever think that we are only tempted if we are dwelling on judgment of others or if we are merely thinking with wrong motivations. God wants our hearts to be pure, not just our actions. That's why Jesus taught that sin is at the heart level. Not just the observable actions, what others can see. You see, the danger is this spirit of the Pharisees. In fact, the same Pharisaical spirit that operated back in the time of Jesus, it still operates today. It's not that the Pharisees were bad. There was a spirit that operated through them because they were ignorant to the things of God. We are all susceptible to the spirit because it comes from our sinful flesh. I'm not saying we all give into it, but it's going to attack every one of us. You see, the Pharisees convinced themselves that sin could only be convicted in a court of law. If you don't see it, you can't prove it, it must not be sin. They figured that sin could only be a sin if it was an observable action. Because in their mind, no one else could testify them, testify against them. If it happened inside of them, they cherry-picked the part of the law where that they felt covered them. Here's the part of the law. It's in Deuteronomy 19.15. It says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Have you heard that before? Yet those who stand on this verse did not and still do not understand that the witness against ourselves is God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit in addition to our own selves, if we are honest and willing to acknowledge our sin. We cannot escape the sin, even if it happens in our hearts or in our minds. It is the Lord who brings conviction when we sin at the heart level. It is the Lord that convicts our minds and our thoughts and even our motivations privately to us. The Pharisees, wanted to believe that the things that they did behind the scenes, the things that they did in secret, the things that they thought and deceived in their own hearts were merely temptations or things that they had control of because they weren't doing them overtly in public. That's why God brought them truth, brought them the truth of the Spirit behind the law. That's why Jesus talks about conviction. And if we truly desire to follow Jesus, then we must understand that sin is not only in actions. Sin is in our words. 
Sin is also in our thoughts. Sin is also in our motivations. Sin is also in the things that we don't do when we know we should do something. That's what the Bible says. James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. We talked last week about the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just about going to church. What's it mean to follow Jesus? And Luke 9.23 says, Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone, anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily. It's a daily decision. And follow me. You need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. And you're in need of salvation that only Jesus can provide to those who are willing to come to him and submit to him. You cannot atone for your own sins. You cannot pay the price for your own sins. You cannot work hard enough to earn enough favor with God or do enough good to balance out the scales of justice in your favor. If you have one sin, you are guilty before God. And there is nothing that you can do or that anyone else can do to fix it. Only Jesus alone can atone for your sins. He alone is our only chance. He said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. The one who follows Jesus is not perfect. The one who follows Jesus is honest and humble and has laid down human pride. The one who follows Jesus is willing to admit that he is wrong, that she has sinned against God and others. The one who follows Jesus is willing to forgive when they have been hurt. The one who follows Jesus continues to trust that Jesus alone can save. That He alone can break strongholds. That He alone can cleanse us and teach us to walk in the way that we are to walk so that we can stay on that narrow road that leads to life. He alone convicts our minds for the sole purpose of bringing sin to the surface so that we can let it go and be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's a part that we must play also. You see, Jesus doesn't just wave his wand and automatically forgive us without us doing anything. 1 John 1.9 If you take anything out of this message, I want you to understand this Powerful breakthrough truth. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins to God, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Amen? No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think it is, if you are sincere in your heart and confess it to Jesus, confess it to God, God will forgive your sins and wipe your slate clean. So now you can come into the presence of a holy God because it's the blood of Jesus that has cleansed you, not anything you have done. But many people, and you know this, and maybe you've wondered why. Maybe you yourself have fallen in the same trap. Many people still repeat the same sin again and again because they're not healed. You see, forgiveness and healing are two different aspects of God. Both take a response from us to do something. Those who truly desire to be healed follow another command from God's Word. That links to this last scripture. 
It's in James 5.16. And it says this, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. See, the effective prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman or a righteous child avails much. Now understand our righteousness does not come from ourselves. Our righteousness comes from God because as we confess our sins to God, His Word says that He forgives us and, he's made, and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So He saves us. Our righteousness comes from God. He forgives us. He imputes forgiveness upon us by the blood of Jesus. But the instruction for attaining healing so that we don't get stuck on those routes and keep repeating the same things happens in this verse when we confess our sins to those we have sinned against. Now, I will tell you, I've been through this, and I, maybe some of you have as well, it's very difficult to humble yourself and to confess sins to others, especially if they didn't know you did something wrong, and you think, ooh, I, I got it off the plate. I'll just ask God for forgiveness. And you'll be forgiven, but you won't be healed. And you'll be susceptible to repeat that same pattern again and again. It's a very difficult thing to humble yourself and confess sins at the heart or the mind or the surface level. It is exceedingly different when the other person doesn't accept your confession or discounts your assessment of the problem. It's one of the toughest things for most people to push through pride, to enter into humility, to risk judgment of others, to pursue healing as the Bible describes. Healing happens when condemnation is broke off of us. Healing happens when condemnation is broke off of us because we've been convicted at the sin level. Remember, your flesh is not going to want to admit it. Your flesh is going to say you're already forgiven by God. It's even going to point to the verse that says that you're forgiven, so don't worry about it. But God says, if you want to be healed... Are you willing to push through your pride? Are you willing to discount the voice of your flesh to pursue healing? To confess your trespasses to another, if it's possible. We have to have the courage by the grace of God to follow through with His leading. And then we will see healing throughout the body of Christ. We come to God, confess our sins so He forgives us and cleanses us. But would we also pray to be bold enough to accept His grace at a level maybe we never have, to not worry about what other people might think of us, to not worry about being judged, but to pursue healing, not just for us and someone else, but for the entire body of Christ. The body of Christ is the hope of the world in this world today. It's the Holy Spirit moving, unhampered by any, any drawback that people may try to, to hold back because people are willing to be healed to give that message. Our world is hurting right now. Our world needs healing. Our world needs Jesus. Are we willing to do what's necessary in each of our own lives to push through to be forgiven and cleansed and to be healed? That is how we break away from the tyranny of our flesh and become dependent on the Holy Spirit to govern our lives. This is something that we can honor.
Allow God to take you by his grace on a journey. If whatever you're dealing with, if God spoke to you through this word, let God take you on the journey to find forgiveness, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and to pursue healing, not in your strength, but by God's grace. We serve an amazing and awesome God, and his love never fails.